Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people with Brad Listy. That's me. You can hear me. And this podcast, while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it. It's free. It takes just a few seconds. And then during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. And where it says that, enter other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks cash money. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a lot of other amazing content as well, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge. Get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is an extended audio recording. This is me making noise. Thanks for listening. Uh, my name is Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you wherever you are, whatever color your emotional landscape happens to be, whatever state of mind you happen to be in. I am now inside of your brain. I am, for all intents and purposes, uh, inside of you which uh, I imagine is very uncomfortable to contemplate. So uh, the holidays are here. The holidays are now upon us. They are looming. It's happening. We're in it. Uh, we're in the shit. I'm in the shit. I've been doing some uh, Christmas shopping. I've been wandering around retail establishments with a confused expression on my face, uh, roaming the local shopping malls. I've done uh, deep breathing exercises inside of parking garages uh, focusing on the rising and uh, falling of my abdomen. And I'm trying as best I can to embrace the experience. Because, you know, every year it seems uh, I get a little grumpy during the holidays. 
And, you know, grumpy isn't even really the right word. I get edgy. I get borderline hostile. (laughs) Uh, Cynical, dark, a little short-tempered. You understand. I get frustrated with this whole uh, enterprise. I don't really like it. I just want it to be over with every year. But I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to be better about it. I'm making a concerted effort. And I think that I've handled it better this year than I have in a long time, which uh, I feel like might be due to the, you know, to the meditating that I've been doing lately. Twice a day, uh, just trying to have a word with myself. It works. It works. I don't know what to tell you. It works for me anyway. It's an effective strategy. Uh, even my wife uh, complimented me the other day on how well I'm handling uh, the holiday experience this year. But uh, I should add that she had to be prompted by me before she issued the compliment. <laughs> I had to give her a nudge, you know, like, uh, hey, honey, have you uh, noticed anything different this year about my uh, attitude? So here's my opinion, okay? Here's what I think, in case you were wondering. <laughs> Here's my basic logic. Number one, uh, the holidays are for poor people. It's for the less fortunate. Uh, Give your money away. Give your things away. Go out into the streets and empty your wallet. (laughs) Just give stuff away is what I'm saying. That's what it should be about. We should all do that if we can. Uh, Number two, it's for kids. That's what it's for. Christmas, the holidays, all of it, whatever you want to call it, uh, it is for children. And, you know, at the level of consumerism, uh, especially, it's the only way that it makes any sense for me uh, at all. Like, let the kids have their fun. Let them have their magic time. If you're going to spend money, spend money on them. Focus on them. Uh, you know, even I, who, as I just mentioned, can be a bit curmudgeonly when it comes to the Yuletide season. Even I cannot bring myself to uh, desecrate my uh, daughter's Christmas experience. She's three years old, and uh, so far, so far, I have resisted the urge to uh, sit her down on a small wooden chair and uh, explain to her in a commanding baritone that it's all complete bullshit. (laughs) I've come close on uh, several occasions, but so far so good, and uh, for now her innocence and her good heart have been enough to persuade me otherwise. And uh, with this in mind, I thought that I would bring her in here uh, into the studio, the, uh, the home studio to try to lighten the mood a bit, brighten the mood a bit. Uh, if you happen to be like me and you tend to find this time of year, uh, a little bit onerous, perhaps, uh, my daughter's perspective could be helpful. So let's bring, uh, Evan in here. How are you, sweetheart? Good. You're good. You're looking forward to Christmas? Yeah. You are? You think you're going to get stuff? Yeah. What are you, what are you going to ask Santa Claus for? Pretend shopping cart, a dog here, the pretend moon maker, uh, pretend, uh, ice cream maker. Oh, and a leash. A leash? Yeah. Like for our dog, Walter? Yeah. For, uh, my animals. Okay. And you, and did you ask Santa Claus for these things? Did yeah, you, did I you talk to him? I wrote it on my list. Oh, you wrote it on your list. Okay. 
Well, I hope it I hope it all works out for you. I think so. We have to write one more thing on my list. I think we forgot to write uh, the least on my list. Okay, we'll have to add that as in a postscript. Does that sound good? What? I think I put my list somewhere, but I don't remember. I have to ask Mom. Okay, well, we can go ask her. Can you say uh, Merry Christmas to everyone? Say Merry Christmas, everyone. Christmas, everybody. So uh, there she is, folks. That's my daughter. Aww. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's pretty ridiculous around here. Uh, just the the level of cute at age three. She's genuinely excited for the holidays. So I'll give her another year, and uh, then perhaps next December, when she's uh, four, I will sit her down, and we can have a long discussion about the Santa Claus myth and the grim realities of late capitalism. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Joyelle McSweeney. She is the author of several titles, uh, as well as a founder of Action Books, a great independent press dedicated to international writing and hybrid forms. Uh, she's part of a website called Monte Vidayo. Monte Vidayo. There's Action Yes, I believe, which is a uh, quarterly or biannual literary journal. I should have done my research, but she's doing a lot of things. She's written books of poetry, including The Red Bird. She wrote a novel called Nyland, The Sarcophagor, another novel called Flet. She's written plays. Uh, did I tell you? She's done a lot. And most recently, her play entitled Dead Youth or the Leaks won the inaugural Leslie Scalapino Award. I'm very happy to have Joyelle here on the program and I hope you enjoy our talk. Here she is, folks. This is Joyelle McSweeney. I'm in South Bend, Indiana, and I'm on the campus of Notre Dame, and uh, the sun is out. It's 32 degrees. People are walking around with a smile on their face. So how did you wind up uh, in South Bend? Well, I was actually living down in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and I was loving the wild ride that is Alabama, but um, we weren't sure. My husband is also a poet, Johannes Gorenson, and we weren't sure that that was going to be a place there would be room for two big poets uh, for the rest of our days. So we just ended up coming up here when the job opened up at Notre Dame, and we've been living here for seven or eight years. Okay. I want to spend more time on Alabama, but I, I guess I kind of want to start at the beginning uh, and ask you where you're from originally. I, I, I want to say I read that you were from Boston. Am I remembering correctly? 
You are so remembering correctly. I'm from Boston, so I'm a McSweeney, and my mom's maiden name is O'Keefe, and we are definitely proud Boston Irish Catholic uh, family. Uh, my grandparents um, came over as tiny children, and um, we've been there about 100 years. Oh, and and uh, you like growing up in Boston? Good place? Like I have, I've talked about this on this show before. I like Boston. I got a good feeling when I was there. Yeah, well, we our immediate family was the only family that moved out of Boston. Um, just with my dad's job, we lived other places on the eastern seaboard and spent a couple wild years in Austin, Texas. And so going back to Boston or the Northeast was always, uh, you know, like where you are with the kids. See all your cousins play with all their toys, get to go swimming, get to eat East Coast pizza. You know, it was sort of awesome for all those reasons. Um, so, and I still love Boston a lot for all those family reasons. Well, sure. Like, okay. So did you, did you not spend like your adolescence there? Because I have this theory where like, you know, everybody loves the place in their childhood where like they used to go visit their grandparents or go visit their cousins. Uh, they also love the place I think, or, or tend to have warmer feelings about the place that they lived when they were like zero to like 12. But then once you get hit adolescence, that's where the disaffection sets in. So like, where were you disaffected? Yeah. Yeah. It's true. And, you know, I was I was a teenager in the 90s. So in a time of like extreme anthemic disaffection. So and I and all that happened for me um, in the suburbs of Philly, where we moved from Texas when I was uh, 10 or 11. And I lived there all through high school. So yeah, there's there's probably some uh, unearned hostility still left in me for the Philly suburb. Okay, so but I will say that uh, Philly itself has changed a lot. And Philly is a fantastic city. I wish I could spend more time there okay well that's good to know and and uh like i think we're about the same age i was born in 1975 so mm -hmm. uh, disaffected 90s like were you like a particularly dark teenager um well i can i admired the people who were particularly dark i mean i had an awakening i had to have an awakening you know <laughs> i was one of those people where my old friends came up to me and like uh my old preppy friends criticized me for no longer tucking in my flannel shirt Whoa. On a day I remember very firmly. Um, but I will say that if I was a late bloomer in the dark arts, I have committed. Uh, and, and I'm only getting younger. Like I am more and more of a goth as the years go by. Um, I love, I love, uh, I love going back to my Poe. I just reread The Shining. Um, I actually never read The Shining uh, by Stephen King, and I love the movie, which I know he doesn't like. Right. So I decided right. I would be good and read The Shining, and The Shining starts with a big epigraph from Poe, and I just read it over and over again and read it over and over, and then I finally was like, okay, now I will read The Shining, which I thought was great, by the way. I totally uh, enjoyed it. I read, you know, I haven't read The Shining since I read it when I was like in seventh grade, I think, you know, right when... I had like I went through a I'm remedial. I'm remedial. No, no, no. Trust me. You're way less remedial than I am. <laughs> you you will dwarf me in your reading, I would imagine. But I, I remember I went through a Stephen King phase. Like I had that like, you know, pre adolescent, adolescent horror phase where like it was horror movies and Stephen King and like all I wanted to do was like see blood and be terrified or whatever. And I read The Shining and was genuinely like I remember being in the living room with my family because all the lights were on and I was with other people to finish it. Like I, and I didn't want them to know that I was scared. <laughs>
Oh, that's wonderful. No, I was really gripped by it. Um, well, I admit, I've always, I've always uh, identified with the Jack Nicholson character in the movie, <laughs> the writer who just totally loses it. Um, I've never totally lost it in a ra- violent rage on the outside, but I can totally. Uh, <laughs> well, wait, wait. The now's, now, now's your opportunity. We can, we could make news on this podcast. You could completely lose. Yeah. Yourself. No, no. On the inside, if it's not turned against myself, it just doesn't feel as real. You know, it has to be on the inside. Um, but yeah, reading the book, it's even more about you know the writer who has to kind of touch back to earth and take care of his family, and it's just to an even more caricatured and delicious extent about being a middle-aged writer. Yeah. I love that that's like a central fable of our culture is this wild, wild story about writers not wanting to like get a job or pick up the groceries, you know. <laughs> well, no, but you know, I'm kind of at that phase. I think we're both at that phase. You're a parent now, right? Oh yeah. Okay, so I'm kind of I'm kind of going through that, you know. And I'm, I'm like, mm-hmm. once you become a parent, you're not. I'm not as hip as I once thought I was. Maybe I never was, but I kind of thought that I was. And it's trying. Mean, I think there's a part of me that's trying to reconcile all that, you know, like picking, uh, picking my well, daughter up. Like I'm going to see like Frozen. Like you know, I'm watching those kids' movies. I, I'm like totally conversant in like the cartoons and the books, and you know, it's just it happens, and suddenly you're in the middle of that- it. That's what culture is, man. That's where the new things are getting made. So, you know, on the op- I would I would make the opposite assessment. I would say like you really know what's going on, you know? Maybe you're picking so. up the slang, you're hearing the the music, you know? Yeah, of course. I mean, I know like the theme song. Did you are you in a Caillou phase by any chance? <laughs> Cartoon is the absolute just, worst. Just out of Caillou, I spent, uh, yeah, I've got a three-year-old and a six-year-old, so the six-year-old doesn't want any Caillou anymore. Yeah. But, yeah, that's yeah. been in our diet. Caillou, Tyro, we, uh, the Word World, um, you know, there's a lot of mm-hmm. I, know, I think we could, I'm probably boring my audience by going over child's cartoons, but um, if, you talk, uh, if you talk to other parents, I mean, I feel like everybody is sort of, uh, I've had these conversations where it feels like, um you know, you're almost confessing. Like, is it? You know, do you do you do this too? <laughs> we we've just been thrown up on the shores of Lemony Snicket, and it's such a relief. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm so happy to be there in this in this world of negative outcomes. Uh, right. The kids are kind of shocked, shocked that this could be possible. But they're sort of fascinating as well. well so it Fascinated. Gets, it gets better pretty soon. You'll be reading The Shining to them in bed. Exactly. Exactly. And then Danny said. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit. You brought up something that interesting that I don't know if I've touched upon in depth with a writer on this show before. Um, but the issue of anger, and I think a lot of writers and artists, but let's just say writers because that's what the show's about, are angry. Like it's, I think all human beings have to deal with it. But there's a lot of frustrations in the artistic life, and um, I guess those get expressed in the work, but... They also find their way into life itself, uh, you know, in unseemly ways sometimes. Like, how do you, mm-hmm. how do you cope with that? Like, are you, do you, do you think of yourself as like an angry person? Like, do you have trouble like dealing with a- anger you might feel about uh, injustice or the various challenges presented by the artistic life? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anyone would call me an angry person in terms of my affect, but I mean, like what I'm like when you meet me uh, on the streets, I, I a lot of things also make me crack up with laughter. And of course, the ludicrousness of the life around us is replete. But um, I do have a pretty dim view of the world, I have to say. I mean, it seems like human nature uh, is not a good thing for the planet or for other humans. And there don't seem to be that many counterexamples 
to that general rule. Uh, so I write a lot. And I think that, um, I think anger about that is a, a lot, a lot of people I know don't like the word anger and feel like it's really important to them. And I respect that for their own life to kind of either meditate themselves out of it or not have that in their writing because they want their writing to be about alternatives. But in my writing, anger is a real engine for things that feel, I hope, new and farcical and quick and crazy and um, surprising to see your own world kind of handed back to you um, in a different sound shape than you expected. So I write about the things that enrage me all the time. I write about, um, you know, I have a play called Dead, Dead Youth or The Leaks and Dead, a lot of what it's... They just won a big award. Congratulations. Oh, yeah, I won an award, which was surprising and amazing and did not about <laughs> did not take my anger away. No, but it's about um, a lot of things. But one of the things that it's about was it was I wrote it during the Snowden uh, caper, I guess you could say. And it, a lot of it is about the treatment of Bradley Manning, now Chelsea Manning, and uh, the strange extra legal position of Julian Assange. And at the same time, all of the uh, children and young people that are getting killed in drone strikes, um, not to mention the young teenagers who are drone pilots, for that matter, and uh, what what has happened to their uh the shape of their lives. So I have a lot of, um, I don't want to keep saying the word anger because it sounds so intense to say it out loud, but I do have a lot of anger and, and grief and uh, outrage, I guess, about these things. And I continually turn them back into my work. But I will say that when it hits my work, it seems to get um, mixed in with almost farce, I would say, like almost a farcical idea of violence, like a Looney Tunes idea of violence to sort of just show like man is a ludicrous, violent animal right, <laughs> who can right. make things fly through the air um, and also kill each other with them. I mean, the the for me, the, my anger and my sense of um, humor are really linked. And I think they like form the two sides of the blade. Yeah. Um, that, for me that no that resonates totally with me like and i think it's a function of maybe it's a function of what i've been reading lately i've been reading uh i just read this book 10 billion which i've talked about on this show which is like a just a devastating critique of like you know the way that we're treating the planet and just like the 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 future that we're headed towards and then i'm reading this book called straw dogs by john gray which is just like a complete dismantling of humanism <laughs> i don't know it's just it basically it basically shows um a lot of the foolishness in really stark relief and in a really convincing way. And like, I find myself, you know, both after reading these books and even before often walking around Los Angeles and just looking at people going through the, you know, the routines of their daily lives and feeling like I'm on the deck of the Titanic or something, which is really, totally. it's like really bleak, but it's like, what are we doing? Like, I, I just, I feel like we're doing it all wrong. And, and, and me too, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I, I feel like in, in order for us to, I don't know. There's got to be a better way, or maybe there's just no stopping it. This is just our nature, and we're as, we're just animals, and you know, I don't. No, know. I wish we were animals. Well, but that's, I mean, the that's, that's part of like the problem. We congratulate ourselves by calling ourselves sapiens sapiens, like we're like so wicked smart, as they say in Boston. You know, <laughs> right, like right. I'm so wicked smart, we're gonna fucking ruin the planet. Right. You exactly. know, I'm so, I'm so wicked smart, I'm gonna make my kids, you know, develop breast cancer at 25 <laughs> with the with the stuff that's in their baby bottles now. Okay. You know, like that's how wicked smart I am. I'm gonna take estrogen, I'm gonna make it hard, and I'm gonna make a baby bottle out of it, and I'm gonna <laughs> pump it into babies, and I'm gonna worry about a 25 year from now 
who could have imagined that yeah. there would be? Well, no, that's, I think that's part of the problem is that we view ourselves as different, like separate from the other animals and like special. Like that to me, mm-hmm. that to me is part of like the, the, the core dysfunction. It's like, you know. Yeah, I have to say, I, I agree. I mean, as a species, uh, as a species, I, it's it's... It's a pretty sorry performance. On the other hand, there are these, uh, you know, these these small, tiny, tiny organisms that live in impossible situations, like literally impossible. Like the, they live in the nitrogen vents on the ocean floor, or they live inside volcanoes. Um, oh, what these different called? situations. What do they? They have a crazy name. Um, there's a group. There's. Uh, I'm sorry. I should. I I could Google this, but we're not on a, on a phone right now. Um, like extreme, they're extremophiles. That's what they're called. Extremophiles. Right. And I think that is the superior group of organisms. And you know, I will be willing to die and let my, you know, my nitrogen or whatever be food for an extremophile. It would really make <laughs> me happy. I think I think extremophile is the way to go. Forget Homo sapiens sapiens. I mean, it just sounds shitty next to extremophile. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like an extremophile. You want to know what my literary uh, affiliation is? It's extremophile. Yeah. You know, I just and 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 that's where we are anyway. Trying to figure out how to live in these situations that like can barely sustain human life, carbon carbon bearing life. I mean. I don't know. I feel like that's going to be, we're going to look to them. And unfortunately we are looking to them. Corporations use extremophiles to do things like figure out how to acid wash genes and stuff. They try to like learn from studying these stupid organisms. It's I mean, fun. the organisms aren't stupid. It's funny, that how to learn. it's funny that you say that because I'm wearing a pair of acid wash jeans right now. Well, Actually, you should I'm thank not. an extremophile. <laughs> its DNA is probably patented. I'm wearing acid washed lead jeans as we speak. I just want everyone to no? know. I don't know. You might want to do a chain of custody on them and find out if some extremophile made that distinctive stippling that makes you so attractive to the females of your species. Um, it well, could be. It this, could be. This is fun. This is fun. I feel like we're on sort of the same wavelength, or at least like this has been like <laughs> this has been like very like at the forefront of my brain lately. And I've been wondering maybe if it's if it's just like this is an this is a new permanent thing or if it's just maybe it's the holidays and I I'm getting you're thinking well you know what I find it strangely this is why decadent literature like I'm talking about you know Poe and all the guys that were influenced that translated Poe were influenced by Poe turn of the century stuff like even the Smiths <laughs> why I find it so reassuring it's like and you know I try to present it to some of my students who write uh, the more out there stuff. That stuff that's more tonally out there, like what we've been talking about. Um, you know, there is a tradition of people who have uh, written themselves into the state of frenzy that you and I now found ourselves in, Brad. And it has its own decor, music, lighting, clothing, and motifs. And, and you can go there in your, in your head for a while when you, when you feel alone, when you find yourself in times of trouble. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can pick up Dorian Gray or something and just own the knowledge of the decadent. <laughs> so, okay. So how do you, and this is a question that I, I often entertain in my own brain. Like how do you reconcile all of this awareness or, or like this kind of like grim feeling about where we're going as a species with, um, uh, reproduction and being a parent? Like I look, yeah. to, I look to my child and I'm like, okay, w- what should I do? Like, how, what do I tell her? Uh, what's the right thing to do? Like, how do you think about that? Well, I'll step one step back from that and say that I didn't really develop this consciousness until I had a kid. Um, And for me, where it really came from was buying things. And again, I will say that advisedly, buying, buying things in a consumerist way, buying things that were supposed to be good for my baby and keep her safe. 
and then having them recalled like six weeks later. Like it turns out, you know, it had such and so poison in it or such and so has now been outlawed in Canada. You you know, whatever, and you return the product. Um, for example, I was given a sanitizer for baby bottles and it was meant to be used with plastic baby bottles. It was made of plastic and you put the whole thing in the microwave <laughs> oh, and I never used it because I was too lazy. But then it's now clear that that's a complete cancer bomb. That's insane. Um, so that the shock of that really woke me up to um, the sort of the, the, the poisonous logic of consumerism and the way motherhood uh, was being constructed all around us in such a way to make you want to buy products. And then those products are dangerous. You have to return them and they, in the junk heap now. You know, this kind of cycle, the way environmentalism, corporate greed, um, or rather the danger to the, the damage of the environment, corporate greed and things like cancer and your baby's health and, you know, who you are as mother are all like circuited to each other and they're just kind of a damage loop, you know, and it's really hard to escape it. So just to add another downer onto that, like for me, it was, it was motherhood that finally made me open my eyes to how I was kind of trapped by this logic and this environment. Um, and, and I was like a delivery system for like bad things to my kid, both from the culture and like literal chemicals, if I bought them the wrong baby bottle or something. So that really threw me and it threw me hard and it threw, but it, on, on an aesthetic level, it made me get a lot more interested in genre literature and darker stuff because I feel like this was a place that didn't hide behind, um, you know, advertising taglines or something. It didn't hide the kind of <laughs> train wreck that this, uh, this species is careening towards, you know? Yeah. But so I don't have a good answer for like, oh, then how do you reconcile, you know, what you're doing with your kids? But one thing I really do, you know, it is true and you don't actually have to try. Um, you just live, live in front of them, <laughs> you know, being as skeptical or as rejecting of the automatic consumption principle as you can be. Yeah. And you try to put um, literature and music in front of them that will give them alternate soundscapes and dreamscapes to the ones that they're supposed to adopt. And, you know, you can't, I don't think you actually can do much more than that. Cause I, for me personally, I, it seems like really trying to program your kids any more than that is, is, is bound to backfire. Yeah, <laughs> so, you know, but, yeah, I, you know, so I, that's I, what I, we do. That's yeah. I think I'm the same way. It's like it's like it's like try to be a good example. Like don't tell her. You know, I think she's going to learn a lot more from how I am than what I say. Um, yeah, you know, she'll learn from both. But I mean, you know, we know how it is. As you, we've been children yeah. before. You know, like your parents <laughs> lecturing you is not going to. After a while, it's going to get a little bit um, well, onerous. Although I will say that probably people with different cultural values than ours um, do drill their kids. This is what catechism is. You know, they, they do drill their kids on what the core values are supposed to be. So every once in a while, Johannes and I will do that too. We'll be like, we'll just say to each other, you know who are the best people? Artists. <laughs> or I love gay people. When I see a man and a man together, a woman and a woman makes me so happy. That's just awesome. That's a cool way to live. And we'll just say it because it's like they are getting the other message like, explicitly said to them all the time. So every once in a while, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be dogmatic today. We're going to see how that goes. I just like throw it out there while we're doing Legos, you know? Just get, just, gay guys. Just They're get, the best. Just get out the bullhorn and just talk for, you know. Well, like I said, the culture, like, I, although my first instinct is the one we just discussed to just like live the life for a living and, and try to make them, to give them some alternatives and be sturdy about it. But every once in a while, I'm thinking, you know, propaganda has its place. 
<laughs> they're getting they're getting the other messages. Maybe we do need to just sometimes verbalize it and be like, in this house, we love art. We <laughs> well, love yeah. to read all day. Okay. You know? So wait, you said earlier that artists are the best people. Do you really believe that, or was that sort of like partial jest? Oh uh, no, I don't. I don't best. I don't mean like morally the best or ethically the best. I just think artists are cool. Yeah. And by artists, I mean writers and artists and everything. And and I wouldn't mind for her to like think of that as her primary value in life. Sure. Yeah. I do think it's the coolest thing to be. I do think it's the best thing to be. Um, but I'm only talking about my own like proclivities and, and you know what I like. I certainly wouldn't say like the most ethical thing in the world is to be an artist. I think the most ethical thing in the world to be is probably like an emergency room nurse or something, right? Um, right. But, right. but <laughs> I'm not going to make any of those claims. Well, but you know, you talked earlier about like you know your own work and how you deal with your anger via your work, but that work somehow becomes. Um, you know, it somehow becomes hybridized with uh, farce and humor and whatnot. And that's another and kind thing. of killer joy. Yeah, but that's that's it. That's kind of like another place that my mind has been lately. It's like, what is a sane response to what I'm I feel like I'm witnessing and what I'm thinking about? And it's like I keep going back to humor. Like if you're not actively trying to in whatever way, whether you're a writer in your writing or you're a painter in your painting or you're just a person living their life, if you're not finding ways to laugh, um, then that's not good. <laughs> I also think that um, I also think that everybody says it, and it's true that laughter is a weapon. I mean, when you see Charlie Chaplin um, as the little dic- the great dictator or whatever in his Hitler mode, I mean, it is so chilling and so powerful and such a weapon. And, and you know, it hurt Hitler's feelings. I mean, somebody hurt Hitler's feelings. It's amazing, you know. Um, but I think I, I think we all know just from from the other phenomenon of our culture, bullying, that laughter is a weapon. And I think it's really interesting to try to make a performance. Not, I'm not talking about bullying. I certainly don't bully my audiences, but I mean a performance that is funny and surprising and hopefully delightful, even as it's using the language of our contemporary moment, like um, talking about drones and uh, viruses and, you know, debt. Debt is something I think about a lot in my writing, uh, the sort of the debt, the nothing that is, you know, that's like the hugeness of that nothing that is debt, that is a stone you carry around, and but it also is nothing. Um, you know, I think about that, about the imagery and the content of what I write about a lot. That Are you in debt? Do you carry debt? <laughs> I don't carry much debt, actually, because I'm pretty allergic to debt. Uh, yeah. Personally, I'm, I'm fearful of it, but... But as a country, we certainly carry debt. And and the other thing is that, you know, I'm a college professor. And so I certainly know that my students are in debt or, I mean, at my school, the grad students don't pay tuition. So they're not in debt from this school, but that doesn't mean that they're not, you know, in a position of debt. And I do think that it is appalling. Like it is, talk about anger, like the amount of debt that is shifted onto students and the way universities are restructuring uh, their quote unquote business model. I mean, it all is really nauseating so i think that's all around us i think young people are dressed in debt and i'm a person who is around young people and cares for young people and sees the strange specter of debt that they're getting like wrapped around them all the time almost in a gothic way you know in a dorian gray kind of way you know you see the young person but the it's really the debt that they are you know well uh, i had a conversation with ben fountain on this uh program that i still remember because it really like hit me hard but he was talking about this very thing, and I think his – I want to say his father was like a university president. Like that's what his dad did yeah, like in North Carolina. Yeah, that makes sense. He writes about universities, right? Yeah, and so he was yeah. saying that like his dad's position is that, you know, like, or like the I think like the 
the popular position or whatever you want to call it uh, among universities or the, the consensus among people or I don't know, is that, you know, when young people take on this college debt, they're investing in their future. And what, oh, they, oh. Yeah, what Ben Fountain uh, argues is that as a society, we should be investing in them and should be making, yeah. you know, university education um, available at low cost or no cost. And that, sure. That seems like a good well, idea yeah. to me. <laughs> I'm willing. I'm willing. You know, I'll teach more. It's cool. I think so too. But I also think that for me, it's kind of empowering. The other thing that to get back to what we were talking about earlier, like you have these kind of dark thoughts that you don't want to like tell everybody at your family holiday party, like, oh my God, debt is <laughs> debt is around us, debt is stalking <laughs> us, or whatever. But on the other hand, it's somewhat freeing. It, there's a freedom in realizing that, you know. That things like the future, that there's a mythology around the way we think about the future and success in our country. Um, even that we use the word dream to talk about it should tell us something. Right. You know, the American dream, it's right. just a moldy, y'all. Um, you know, this way we're supposed to be future oriented and this way we're supposed to all want property and this way we're supposed to all want, which again is mortgage, it's debt. You know, like you're supposed to want to own a house while you'll be in debt to the bank. Like that's what success and stability is. That's crazy. There's so many. Um, strange contradictions and impossibilities now, like things that are really impossibility about the middle class life we're all supposed to want and try to hold on to. Um, and I think in some ways it's, it's been very freeing for me to realize like, Oh my God, you know, I don't have to want that and I don't have to give up everything to, that, to get that or, you know, or those aren't good things, <laughs> you know, even just to be able to think of yourself like, Oh, you know, it's not a good thing to run up as much debt as possible and to lease cars and to, you know, and to, that, that's actually like, works for corporations not for you right um, you don't have to want those things that's kind of like freeing yeah it's like it's like it's, but, it's nice to every once in a while just like push the pause button and say like well who says like who says we have to do it this way and and by the or way or even want it yeah yeah i'm glad to hear you say so that. so it's kind of i think that's kind of freeing on the other hand you know yeah i don't i don't want kids to have student debt i think it's crazy i don't want I do dearly want this uh, health insurance project to work out, you know, so that, and then there'll be more artists and that'll be good. Yeah, that's true. You know, that's people true. will be able to live lives that have different shapes and sizes and um, take care of themselves and make great art into their old age, their healthy old age. And that's what I want. So, so going forward, do you see yours? I mean, are you, you want to be a teacher? Like going forward, that's the. That's the. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. No, I really enjoy it. Um, I really enjoy working with um, students at all levels. I really enjoy pushing people to make their own styles. I love suggesting things for people to read. I love getting suggestions back, and just being being here when when the student really pushes through to the writing that feels like most of theirs and the most necessary to them and the most urgent to them. I love it. Yeah. I love it. It's really. It is really hard. Or hard might be not a fair word to use. <laughs> it's uncomfortable. The, 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 the white collar equivalent of hard. It's uncomfortable <laughs> to sort of see the um, changes, like we just mentioned, going on at universities, this way that students seem to get less and less for their money. Um, business models seem to be turning towards, like, kind of trying to do less on campuses and trying to, I think, weaken the faculty student relationship. Uh, there are things that are going on that are really saddening, or the reliance on adjuncts, of course, and the way adjuncts can't get protections in many places. And 
you know, I'm sure maybe you saw this news story about like in the Chicago city uh, colleges, how they're creating these um, thumbprint scans to like, so when you come to the office to teach your class, you like touch your thumb to the thumbprint monitor to like register your, your presence and things like that. You know, this kind of collapse of security system into school campuses, uh, the Homeland Security uh, scenario into every public building in the country. You know, all these things pile up and make me feel, do, they do make me feel bad uh, that this is my universe and this is where I work and where I'm situated from. But I hope that the work that I'm doing while I'm here is going to be valuable for the students. And I'm really here for the students. Well, I mean, so. yeah, you're helping. Come on. That's like a, that's a helping profession. There are worse things you could do. <laughs> well, that's true. There are worse <laughs> things I could do. So what are your... That uh, we can at least say. That's an absolute. Yes, indeed. And uh, what do your folks do? Do you come from writerly people? Well, not exactly. Uh, my father, there, he's retired now, but he's always been in insurance, in dental insurance for a lot of my upbringing. And my mother... Um, well, this is a good example. Like she trained to be, she was a school teacher when we, when my brother was young and then she left to take, left the workforce to take care of us. And then she got her master's degree to go back and for her dream job, which was to be a school librarian. Uh, but by the time she finished all of that, there weren't school librarians anymore in public schools. So she ended up back in the classroom and she loves teaching and she's retired as well, but she's a real natural teacher. So all that is fine. But, uh, but it is sad. I mean, her dream job was really just to be the library and the one ordering the books and giving the books out to readers and doing all that work. But, um, that was on the way out. You know, and this by is, the this time is we were in high school. This is not a commentary on your mother at all, but when you were talking about her wanting to be a librarian, I suddenly had like a flash memory of the librarian in my junior high. Uh, and she uh -oh. was, she was a very, very angry, like, like, like openly hostile old woman with like white hair who, 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 yeah, she just was not nice at all. And everybody called her the buzzard. <laughs> That's too bad. And it's hardly what you guys needed for your librarian. No, I know. I know. But I mean, I now I look, I just, uh, I haven't thought about the buzzard in a long time. And uh, that's no, the buzzard. Yeah. I wonder what she wanted to do, what her dream job was. <laughs> You know what she? I remember one time uh, for Christmas break, she went to Russia, and this was like 1980. That was awesome. Yeah. Well, she, she fucking kicked ass. That yeah. was awesome. Yeah. That was an awesome move. Yeah. So I mean, but I remember back then. This was, like, this was like. You know, <laughs> this was like. <laughs> maybe she just was misunderstood. You know, I don't know. I was. I was. Oh yeah, I would say so. It sounds like it sounds like she had a historical beef. <laughs> So anyway. well, this is a this is a novel worth writing, you know, <laughs> like like either she could have been. So she went after the fall of the wall. She no, went this was this was right like, away or right before. Like, this was before. This was like 88, 89. Yeah. And I remember like and like so all of us because, you know, as 12 year old, like we grew up like Cold War. Of course, Russia, Reagan, Russia, Reagan babies. Rocky, yeah. Rocky, Rocky three or was it Rocky four? You know, like that sort of thing. And then. Uh, yeah. I was like, why would you want to go to Russia? You know, and of course, That's awesome. Yeah, maybe the maybe the buzzard had. So maybe there's just like a whole other story here. <laughs> she could, you know, I love it. She could have been the spy that was left out way out in the cold. <laughs> you know, just like way the fuck out there in the cold. You know, you're like you're in deep cover, <laughs> like comrade buzzard. We're coming for you when the time is right. That's you just right. hang out there. <laughs> So, she's like, know. damn it, y'all haven't come for me. I'm coming back. <laughs>
So it, it sounds like you had like a, a happy, stable childhood. Your mother seems, seems like I am always interested in hearing about what, like where the writing thing comes from. And there's usually like a through line. It seems like it comes from your mom. Like you are. Yeah, well, they both uh, are book people, but yeah, my mom definitely is like always getting books in our hands, long trips to the library. To this day, whenever we move anywhere, uh, I immediately get a library card and I feel as rich as possible at that time. Um, when I get my new library card, or even when I get to go to the library, like these days, I mean, I'm a 37-year-old woman, and I've got two little girls, but if I can sneak, like, two hours of the library, the public library on my own, like, picking up books, hardcover books, and checking them out, like, I really feel like I'm getting away with something. Like, this, this, is, a, this is a true pleasure for me. So I definitely owe that to my mother. Um, but both my mother and father uh, really valued the idea that I was my you know my brothers played sports my sister did some sports and did student council stuff but I only did I only did like literary stuff and read books and they were totally how many kids how many kids were in your family I'm one of four I'm second of four you're second of four so it yeah. So you were, and we're all big readers. So. Were, were you a nerd uh, uh, as a child? Oh yeah. Oh Jesus, yes, okay. yes. All right. I mean, yes, I, Lord. But what does that mean? <laughs> what, does that, what does that look like? I, mean, I was, and I am a nerd. I just love. I'm sorry. I, I can't. You know, I can't think. I just love being in the class. And I love doing the homework and studying <laughs> and learning things. I mean, I wasn't even that. I wasn't like the the, the brain who could ace everything. But I just like loved doing it i'm sorry i'm still here man yeah but i love wait. it okay so wait but you went to harvard and oxford did you not am i yeah i did yeah because okay, so i stuck with it so but you're you're, <laughs> you're underselling you were you're a genius come on yeah right come on i'm a genius harvard and oxford. i really oh. like book learning i'm a book learning girl so i'm really into it i love reading total i'm i'm like i love the canon I mean, I'm kind of a literary warrior, let's say. I love to blow stuff up, formally speaking, and, and write crazy, super contemporary-sounding stuff. I love slang, but I I mean, I love the canon. I love uh, classical literature. I love uh, Greek drama. I love <laughs> I love everything. You know, I love if it's in words, I love it. So really? I love, I, I'm a bookworm all the way. Okay, so let me confess, because this, this is like a part of my uh, literary insecurity, which is vast and bottomless. <laughs> Uh, but I have a hard time reading like a lot of books in the canon. And I remember, yeah. and I'm haunted by a quote from John Updike, who I also have trouble reading. Um, well, that's fine. And yeah, and he said that, you, you know, it, it's not that you should um, read the canon or read the classics, or, or it's not that you, God, what did he, how did he say it? it? He basically said, you don't read them because you like them. You read them until you like them or something like that. And it's like, is that what I'm supposed to do? Or you just naturally pick these up and it's like, oh my God, I love uh, the Iliad. This is wonderful. Like it's just, no, yes. But I love, I love anachronistic writing. I mean, anachronism is actually my solution here. It's just like reading across the grain, you know, reading unnaturally, putting things in conversation with each other. Like, I like this, I don't know if you know this Korean, this Korean writer, Kim Soon who's a contemporary uh, Korean writer. She writes in- incredible, awesome kind of allegories of the military dictatorship, but using really cute animals like uh, <laughs> ba- baby rats and things. So it's sort of this anime version of, 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 of dictatorship and occupation. And it's just, it's both cute and frightening and wild and outrageous. And I love it. Yeah. Very, very contemporary writing. And, um, but after I read it, I started thinking a lot about, I, I actually went back and read, um, 
things from other periods that, oh, and I also read like Osa Bari, the Swedish poet who does the same kind of thing, but with guinea pigs. <laughs> but I started thinking about how these, these writers, these very, very contemporary writers construct these really strange landscapes that seem part real and part horror film and part cute and part anime. And that seems very contemporary. But the way that their landscape is filled with um, what we would might say affect or mood or landscape, like the landscape is full of horror or the landscape is full of, you know, baby, baby dogs, tears or something. <laughs> that made me think about the kind of, uh, maybe go back to actually the World War One poets that you study in high school, like Wilfred Owen and, um, and how the landscapes that those poems happen in are actually really strange. You know, they're full of ghosts and moans, or the land is sweating, or, you know, it's full of holes, and, and, and worms come up out of them and wriggle around. <laughs> you know, like, the, in fact, like, an animatronic reading of Wilfred Owen was really interesting for me, um, <laughs> to, see the way, to see the way that the affect, that the, the strong emotions, which, you remember, we used to be told were was a pathetic, the pathetic fallacy, right? Like that's a problem in literature when the landscape like reflects the emotions of the characters, but hell no. In teenage writing, it's always there. And in this Wilfred Owen, you know, basically a teenager, um, you know, this writing that's supposed to be about war and that we usually think of as somehow noble, but when you really read it, you see that it's like ripped with feelings and that the whole landscape is rotting and he's basically a zombie and, and it's kind of amazing disembodied, almost zombie writing. And, you're drawing, so, and you draw like a, a direct parallel to what Kimmy Soon is doing with that? Is that what you're saying? I don't think like necessarily a direct parallel, but I think it opens up like what you might call a zone. So instead of worrying all the time about influence and like canonical order, like the order that the canon is in and who influenced who and blah, 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 which I think is just a cultural construct. I don't think that's important at all. Right. And I like reading backwards in time and thinking like, you know, what if, what if uh, influence doesn't work that way at all? And maybe... What if we can see something that's going on between landscape and mood um, and, and militarism that's running weirdly from this contemporary South Korean poet like back to World War One in England? You know, like, what if we just read it all as working backwards? What if we think of everything as being animated by something that's asynchronous that wants to just come into literature? I don't know. Um, a more occult way of thinking about the writing that's not contemporary. That makes it really exciting to me. It makes it just it makes it like these pre-contemporary writers just like jumping up, waving their arms at me, and then I want to go see what it's all about, you know. So I'm really not interested in the canon in like a historical way at all, but in a trans-historical way, I'm totally, I'll totally juice that stuff. <laughs> see what see what's there and read it again and take the weirdness of it that that you're not you're not supposed to notice. Okay, so. I mean, and this like kind of leads me to uh, hybrid forms, experimentation, the avant-garde, um, which yeah. I find it tricky to talk about just because it's like, uh, it can be really dry. <laughs> it can be, well, it can be dry, but it's also kind of in a weird way. It's like a big space. Like there's a lot of ways to define it and a lot of different ways to kind of yeah. like, you know, do it or whatever, but this is a preoccupation of yours. Um, correct. <laughs> Well, in a way, yeah, I think that's it's only a preoccupation of mine because that's where I'm usually located when people want to try to place me as a writer. Right. They think of me as being part of an avant-garde. And I think that um, I'm also really motivated and interested by early 20th century avant-garde, like the kind of avant-garde writing that did pop up in the teens and 20s, like right before and during and right after World War One, with the shock of World War One, like that period, but whether it's Russia, France, uh, Spain, Zurich, wherever, that really interests me. 
um, that stuff is wild. Like There's what? like young guys, yeah. like Dadaism and surrealism and futurism, I mean, stuff that you might not agree with. It's not politically correct, you know. It's not a lot of ladies in some wings of it, but but it was a bunch of really young writers who were like either enthralled by or shocked by modernity and they had to make all kinds of new literary shapes to try to keep up with what felt new to them. And that's still fresh stuff for me. That's still wild stuff for me. So for me, what's avant-garde is not about a set of rules, what you do or you do not do in the writing. It's, it's about trying to like be just as urgent as the present moment is, you know, and just trying to be as like, surprised and shocked and dismayed by the world in the very first moment of recognition as as you are when you're 17. I mean, for me, that's still like the best mode to write in. I'm not interested in wisdom or reflection or spirituality. There's plenty of writers who are. Mm -hmm. Plenty of writers can do those things. I'm not interested in interiority. I just want to be like lit up by the world all the time and try to keep up with my own adolescence emotions. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. So like as a reader, are you, are, are you interested in um, spirituality or any of those things, those ref, like reflection or is it, are you? Well, I'm like a, I'm a Catholic. So I, I love, you know, reading crazy saints writings and um, I think prayers are wild and you know, I, I, I am actually Catholic. I am a firm believer in the Virgin Mary. And uh, I love the cult of the Virgin Mary and all everything that goes on around Mary all around the world and how it becomes part of Santeria and other kind of world religions. Um, well, wait, 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 wait. Let me stop you because I was I was raised Catholic. I kind of like fell away. Yeah. But um, my I, my family like uh, four of my aunts were nuns. My uncle's a priest. Oh my yeah. god, that's major. Yeah, I'm there's like, to love. Yeah, I come from deep Catholics, both of my parents. So when you say you're a big fan of the Virgin Mary, like you really believe in the Virgin birth and stuff, or do you just like the iconography of it and like the myth and like, you like it at the level? Oh, I don't know. I think I still believe it. I think there's some stuff you can't get around if it's uh, part of your upbringing insistently and culturally in a culturally strong and reinforced way. You know, you still have that reflexive, you know, I believe in gravity and I believe in the Virgin Mary, but I'm a lot more interested in Mary than I am. I'm definitely one of those Catholics that the you know in the Reformation they called the Mary idolaters. You know, like I'm really only interested in Mary. I'm not so interested in thinking at great length about Jesus's you know incarnation. I mean, I am interested in his incarnation actually, but you know all the various theological implications. And I'm not interested at all in priests or any of that. Okay, I so really have a, a Mary-centered uh, Catholicism. So what is it about Mary? Well, I think it's kind of amazing. Yeah, there is totally something about Mary. I think it's amazing, I guess, because of the way we know historically that she picked up the iconography, that all that's different iconography attached to her from pre-Christian days, you know, like that different cultures, kind of goddess cults could kind of attach to um, the Mary figure. And in some ways, that means that the Mary figure smuggles really old um, cultural contents with her. I think she's a smuggler. First of all, she smuggled Jesus in. <laughs> she smuggled Jesus into the meat world, first of all. Second of all, I think she's like, yeah, I think she's like a cultural smuggler that lets other religions and cultures and ideas become kind of visible in an um, in a kind of lawless way. Um, and, and I think she's a radical. Like her, I think, I think Mary is radical. I think the way she chooses people to appear to is radical. She's always appearing to you know, peasants and insane people. And I think that's a radical choice of message bearers, you know. And I think that she can be a revolutionary symbol because, like, I'm at Notre Dame, which is a pretty conservative 
campus and it's run by there, you know, the, the president's a priest and, um, you know, there can be some conservative vibes here. And yet there's this picture, these, these images of this woman everywhere, <laughs> you know, and it's just like a constant for me. It's, and I realize this is like a totally not orthodox way to think, but you know, her image is a constant reminder of alterity to me, like a constant alternative to a more conservative way of running either the church or the world, you know, yeah, like here yeah. she is. She's like in every line of sight here, literally, wow. like there is some kind of Mary figure in every line of sight on this campus. And I love that. I'm totally all for it. Okay. So I, I don't have like a really great historical understanding of, uh, you know, theology, the religion, the historical Jesus, but like, it always <laughs> strikes me that the obvious thing is that there's no set, you know, there's no virgin birth or conception. She just got knocked up. And then there was this myth well, around her, right? No. Well, that seems that definitely seems more statistically probable. I mean, I think that's absolutely more statistically probable. But that's where faith comes in. I mean, like that makes me sound like a cheese ball, but like, you know, I I also believe that art is crime. Like, you know, I don't want art actually to be a crime, but I believe it's an article of faith that art is a crime. So if I can believe that art is a crime, <laughs> I can also believe. I mean, art is crime in the best way. Like, art should break, art should break something and work against stability. So I can also believe in the virgin birth that Mary just like, you know, wished Mary just became the place Jesus was. And that was that. Wow. Okay. So do you go to church and stuff or are you just like, Oh no, I don't like, I think about it every once in a while. Cause I like being around the artwork, Yeah. but, and all the gold, you know, that looks good. Sure. But, uh, <laughs> I don't like priests. I don't like priests <laughs> telling me what to do and I don't think I need them. Okay. I'm going to go to hell with all the fun people, despite all my ranting about Mary. <laughs> Uh, I like the idea of art as a crime, as an article of faith. That's sort of a nice thought. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's like if you get really into the decadent literature, whether it's, you know, against the grain or, you know, Oscar Wilde or whatever. I mean, there's lots of sayings and mantras. I mean, there's, it's very religion-like, you know, so you can just kind of decide on your own little religion of art, you know? Yeah. And uh, if you wish, if you're bent that way, but certainly the the other way of looking at it is what's great about it is that it's not religious. So, you know, that's a great relief to lots of people, and I enforce that, too. I'm so, in favor of that. So, okay, so briefly, like not to get too far off into a Catholic tangent, but it is on everybody's Twitter feed, and it's on everybody's mind in some respect, it seems, because of the media coverage. But, like, what do you think of Pope Francis? Um, well, it, you know, it's hard for me to know because – um. I love his, I love everything he's been doing. I mean, I love how that he, you know, made this decision to kind of like dial it, dial directly, drill down directly into the Francis vibe and be um, relatively radical. You know, I mean, that's, that's pretty awesome. I, I like it. Uh, it is interesting that he's managing to make people mad. That's good too. Yeah. Um, the right people too. <laughs> yeah. In it literally. Mind, in my view. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it, I mean, there's stuff the, I don't understand about him historically that has to do with his uh, prehistory in Chile and stuff that 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 is a lot less clear to me um, and to my Chilean friends. But in terms of what he's doing in the present, uh, you know, I think it's pretty refreshing, and I like it that people are interested too. Right. That there is some right. major global celebrity who can like make these comments about wealth and the poor and how people should treat each other. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think, but I also feel like there's, you know, I've heard like the, there has been some criticism where it's like, yeah, but, you know, there are like, I heard like, uh, I forget where I read it, but it was like an, you know, pretty compelling essay by a woman who was like, well, yeah, but, you know, women still can't be priests. Like, 
there's still like a lot, yeah. there's still a lot of things that like you know for all the the good talk that he hasn't moved on and i guess it's just like you know we'll have to wait or whatever you know because yeah and i'm not confess i'm not con- i'm you know like i'm not i don't have that feeling like Catholicism is my team and I'm glad they have a better manager or maybe this year it'll be the, we'll get the pennant. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I don't even know if it's a great idea for Catholicism to like get better. And like, maybe it should, maybe it should just go away as an institution and people can just like, you know, pursue it on their own. I mean, this obviously makes no sense at all, like in real world, but I don't live in the real world. I live in, I live on my head. So it's okay. But you know, it's not like I'm like, Oh God, if only Catholicism could just do this. I do think that only the Catholicism could stop making people miserable. That would be awesome. In all the myriad ways they make people miserable. Fuck well, it. I have, I'll I, give it away. I'll give it away if that's what it would mean. You know, I'll give it up. I have a theory, though. I have a theory that, like, these institutions, not just Catholicism, but other religious institutions, like, as we go forward, if we're able to go forward, you know, if we don't, like, completely self-destruct, like, at some point there's going to have to be, uh, and forgive the expression, but, like, a come-to-Jesus moment where we, like, we start to uh, really modernize and like make some like radical changes in order for these things to remain relevant. Or is that just, I don't know. I yeah. Guess. I mean, I think it's, I think they've lost the battle. I don't know how many more generations. I mean, it seems like, I mean, I, don't, I don't know. We're both well out of our expertise, area of expertise now, probably. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Let's reel it back it in. It seems to be like the Pentecostalists are winning that one, you know, as far as. Christian religions go, so. Yeah. so feeling relevant to people and all that uh, jazz. I want to ask you. I, I want to ask you about your uh, your education some more before I let you go. Um, sure. You're very well educated. Uh, you went to Harvard. Uh, True. How was that? Was it good? You liked it? It was pretty great for me. I have to say. I mean, it's certainly not. I will say in retrospect. I mean, I have a really extroverted personality. Surprise, and I love to run around and go to class and. You know, I, I think about also I was not yet attuned. I was not very socially attuned being a nerd to um, situations of that should have made me feel insecure or whatever. I mean, but if I think if I had been like a more sensitive and like nice person that I there would have been a lot more. Uh, I would have felt some insecurities there, um, you know, because you're kind of just thrown into it. And it's kind of a it's a pretty electrifying but kind of doggy dog kind of situation people are jockeying evaluating each other and all that stuff but it just rolled off my back I wasn't interested I just wanted to like do the literature stuff you know that's just all I wanted to do so it was great for me but I think it's basically based on your personality if that's what you want like a great big crazy invigorating running around place it was that for me did you did you I mean was it like did you have your sight set on this are you like a goal-setting person where you're like I want oh no 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 not really um that was not part of it but you got in all. you got in so you applied there yeah I, I, I applied there and a couple I applied there and I applied to Amherst and I uh applied to Georgetown because I thought I might want to get a degree in international relations um but, you know, that's how it worked out. That's where I went, and here you, we are, so it worked out. Did you out. get into all of them? I did get into them. Yes, okay. I did. What did you get on your SATs? Oh, May I ask you? I don't remember. This was like 20 years ago. I honestly do not remember. You must have done well. But I do know that they changed the grading scale, so it doesn't even matter anymore. Did you get a 4.0? It's spoiled. Did you get a 4.0? Uh, at Harvard? Were you, no, were you like a valid? No, I don't even know. You don't know. 
You've blocked it I out. honestly don't know. I've let it go. I'm sorry. I don't even know. But I worked really hard, and I got to go to Oxford. So I obviously like did what I was supposed to do. Yeah. So what is but it? But I literally have let all those numbers come. Did you go to uh, Oxford for graduate school? Is that what it was? Yeah, I did a master's degree there, and um, I studied poetry. I studied uh, contemporary, modern contemporary uh, poetry, which has been really incredibly rich all these years. Um, and I studied a lot of Yeats, a lot of Yeats and Joyce. But um, the Joyce was a pleasure. I mean, you only have like three books to read, so it's not too hard. <laughs> but the Yeats, the Yeats was really an indoctrination. I mean, to read all the letters and all the different drafts of all the different poems and um, things that people said about him contemporaneously and stuff like that. And it was it was a really rich experience and um, really stayed with me. I think Joyce has really influenced my writing because I write with my ear and I just I don't even care about anything other than following the delight of the sound. I write really slangy stuff and it's probably going to be really outdated really fast, but I just love writing things that delight my ear. And I know that's all from Joyce. That's a, that's a, it feels um, like a very Irish thing too, or something like the oral tradition. Yeah, probably. Maybe. Oh, maybe. I don't know. Well, Irish modernists, they really hit it out of the park, you know? So, so okay. So what, what does it look like? What does it look like when you sit down to write? Like, are you an everyday writer or do you... Like, when I'm happy, I am. I'm happier when I'm an everyday writer, but I don't think I made my peace with not being an everyday writer too. Um, Cause you know what? I think a lot of things go into being a writer. So for me, you know, I run a small press with my husband and we publish new work, us works, but also stuff in translation, contemporary stuff in translation. And that's what has changed my life. And this is action books, so, right? Yeah, it's called action books. So we study, we published that Korean writer I was talking about, Swedish writer. We published a bunch of awesome stuff from Latin America. And so that's stuff like an, an apprenticeship. You get to edit this, not edit it, like I don't change any of the writing, but go through the manuscript so closely with the translator. Um, it's like an education every single time. So I feel like my sense of scale, the scale of my writing has been wildly expanded by reading these writers from around the world. And um, your sense of possibility just gets expanded when you get knocked outside of what's in your tradition and like, if I had to worry about Robert Frost all the time, I would never write a poem, you know, but I have all these other great poets from around the world that I've become really familiar with from doing this work. And it's, it's like, it's such a gift, you know, how, it's do, you such get, an how awesome do you even thing. get in touch with them? Is it, I mean, just, you, you hung up your shingle as this press and said, we're going to do translations and then people started submitting to you or. Yeah. I mean, there's no translation process you might've noticed. And the few that there are, are just heroic, like archipelago, ugly duckling, you know, these presses all do heroic work. Um, so people know that we're the ones that publish contemporary work that's really um, influenced by the historical avant-garde. So I'm not using that word to mean like language poetry or New York school or whatever, like not the U.S. sense of that word, but just, you know, stuff that is influenced by the surrealists, but the surrealism of Latin America, say, or um, surrealism of Europe, for that matter. Um, stuff that ha makes crazy shapes on the page or... Um, makes an interesting use of genre or voice. Um, these are, this is stuff that we're really going after. So people know what, what we like, and the translators usually just get in touch and be like, I think I have an author that you guys would love, want to do it. And we're like, yeah, awesome, thank you. We get started. That's that's pretty much it. Um, so, okay. so the so, translators come to us. Uh, so the transition, I want to talk a little bit, because I think people listening probably might, ha or a lot of people listening might have uh, related interest or related experience. But um, Harvard to Oxford, obviously a good 
good education, good situation to be in when it comes to trying to find academic work and trying to get started yeah. as a writer of your own stuff. Like you finished this master's degree at Oxford. Like, were you immediately teaching and working? Like, did you struggle? Oh, no, no, no. Then I, I went and got an MFA. I got an MFA at, at the little known, at the very obscure Iowa Writers Workshop. Oh, right. You did that too. God, you are so well-educated. I feel like you probably, you're being nice. I went I, to the fanciest schools. It's you did, true. But you're very, uh, you're very bright. I bet you know. I feel like you're, <laughs> you feel inferior. I'm de- I'm stumbling over my that's, words. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. <laughs> that we, that's, that's crazy. Well, I don't know. We've been having an awesome conversation an hour so obviously <laughs> we are nothing but soulmates that's cool okay no i just you know i love school i love it and i still love it i love making syllabuses i love reading books i love getting somebody else's syllabus and reading those books i mean this is just me i am the fish in this water it's not for everybody but it surely is <laughs> it surely is for me i really it. loved it you feel like you found your thing you've always sort of known it but i think that might be true although no i could not have told you i mean i didn't even know what an mfa program was um until well, maybe I mean that was not a part of my knowledge. I didn't even understand who the grad students were at, at Harvard who were you know teaching our little sections or whatever. Um, that was not I didn't have that kind of knowledge of academia that that was what I wanted to do. But I just I'm exhilarated by writing. I'm exhilarated by art. I love talking about it. I love being surprised. Um, no one loves to find out they're wrong, but I kind of love finding out I'm wrong and having to reread things and reconsider things. Um, it's just really for me. So it's I, cool. I, I like and the other too. thing is I, I like, like learning from other people. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, like, I, uh, I, this book that I'm reading recently, it's like, it's a complete dismantling of everything I previously thought. And I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, he felt, I forget. Uh, yeah. It, it's, it's exciting stuff. So, so I love it. And I also think that, um, I, I've learned a lot. This is a cheesy thing to say, but like I've learned so much about teaching from my colleagues. When I went first went down to Alabama, that was my first full time job. Um, my colleagues down there were writers Sandy Huss and Michael Martone, and uh, the poets Joel Brower. Um, so we learned. I learned so much specifically from um, the way creative writing was taught down there. So that was almost like I was the instructor, but when they talked about what they do down there in Alabama, in the Alabama program, when they teach the undergraduates, or at least when I was there, they did not have like a genre first curriculum. So it wasn't like you have your fiction portion, you have your poetry portion, and then you decide as a student whether you like poetry or fiction better, and that's that. Instead, they really thought you have to teach the students like to love writing itself, to love creating writing itself. And then you can show like, oh, well, you know, there's this tendency in your writing that leans more towards prose or this leans more towards poetry. Or here's some examples of poets who do like what you do, but so do prose. Like, so they didn't put genre first. They didn't make you choose a team first. That wasn't like how they worked down there at all. And uh, that really spoke to me as a teacher and it really changed kind of the boundaries of what I thought about as genre. And that's just because that was my job was to design a class for undergraduates that wouldn't put genre first. And, you know, I was given that challenge, but it started changing my writing and changing me. So, you know, I, I have also found it like a fruitful place to be in. And I know not everyone has this feeling and, you know, that academia, as we know, it may not be long for this world, but, you know, it has been valuable for me and it has been a really rich and, and, you know, changed my, changed my writing and changed, changed my life. So there you go. Well, I, uh, I've had so much fun talking with you. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been fun. I feel like I've learned a lot and I almost feel like we could do like two episodes and we could like, I didn't really even hear about, 
um, your your on the ground experience in Alabama or like at Iowa. Yeah, it's wild. I have stories, boy. Okay, crazy. Well, well, maybe sometime down the road we can do like a Joy yeah. Sweeney like in Alabama episode or something. Well, <laughs> gone to Alabama, <laughs> the band are on my knee. Um, Absolutely. Well, and congratulations on the uh, the award. Is it um, is it Scalapino? Did I just? Yeah, it was a scal. It was a playwriting award because that's something that I've been doing for a while. But I. And there's a play in each of my last two poetry books, but I actually just sat down and wrote like a freestanding play for the first time um, in the offices of this contest. And so it was amazing to win, but it's also kind of shocking. It's like starting over with a genre that you feel a little more exposed and, you know, a little more naked in again. So it's been awesome on that level, too. I don't know. I like to feel like I'm starting over all the time. It really makes me care. I care so much about it, you know, it's so urgent to me. Cool. Well, thanks again for taking the time to talk. I wish you all the best going forward, and we'll be. Well, thank you, Beth. We'll be thank very, you. very interested in seeing uh, what you come up with next. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Back to the drawing board. Thank you. Okay, everybody, that is Joyelle McSweeney. What a delight. You can find her on the Facebook. That's where she is online. Her books can be found most places that books are sold. Uh, seek them out. She's a very gifted uh, human being. She is wicked smart. Did I say that correctly? I'm intimidated. I'm a little intimidated. I have an inferiority complex uh, when it comes to uh, people who went to Harvard. I'm aware of this. I feel like it's a theme in the show. I feel self-conscious about it. I'm blushing a little bit. I feel like I'm over-talking about this particular point. Do you agree with me? Am I, do- am I doing too much? Is it getting embarrassing? Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And, uh, hey, don't forget about that app, the free official Other People app. It's the best way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. It just happens. It's like uh, a magic trick. The app is available for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device, and it's also the best way to access the show's full archives and all premium content. So please go get the app if you haven't done that already. The app itself is free. Okay? So uh, that is it for now. I'm racing. Can you hear the urgency in my voice? I'm recording this before I leave for New York City. This is all very time sensitive. It is a precision operation. There's pressure. There's time pressure. There's internal pressure. There's pressure. But I am dedicated to delivering high-quality audio content to you. Are you at a shopping mall right now? Are you listening to me while participating in a spectacularly nauseating parade of wanton consumerism? Please remember that O. Henry died penniless and that Baudelaire often wore pink gloves. That is it for now. Thank you once again, Joyelle McSweeney. Uh, Go get her books, you guys. Go check out Action Books. I will be back again soon, on Sunday, I believe. That is the idea. Uh, It continues to be uncertain. I'm going to leave you on the edge of your seat. Do you like how I keep talking about my workload at the the, uh, close of all recent shows? I'm just trying to keep you informed, people. And I want you to know the extreme lengths to which I will go to satisfy my listenership. Quality is job one. If you're not satisfied, I'm not satisfied. As far as I'm concerned, the listener is always right. Success is in the details. It's about delivering the best possible product to the marketplace on time, every time, because that's the American way. It's the way of late capitalism. It's what greases the wheels of this incredible machine. (laughs) 